enjoyed this study through Matthew, and we last week covered the longest chapter, and now we have, I think, the second longest chapter in chapter 27. The life of Jesus is winding down on this earth. Matthew was telling the story of Jesus, specifically addressing it to a Jewish audience, and so it has that flair to it all the way through. But if you were with us last week, you saw that Jesus was preparing his disciples for his eventual death. We saw one of his disciples, Judas, after Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and Judas is like, is it, is it me? He actually goes out and makes a deal with the Jewish religious leaders for him to identify Jesus for them, show where Jesus was, so that they could arrest him. And we saw, in fact, they show up with a bunch of soldiers, and Judas kisses Jesus so that they would know he was the guy. Jesus calls him friend. The disciples all bail and run. They, the, that night, it was the evening of the Passover, so it, Passover started like Jewish days do, started when the sun went down. So he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, invented communion, then goes out, struggles in the garden in prayer, and now he's arrested by these Jewish guys who really don't have the authority to arrest somebody. But the Roman officials aren't working at night, so they took him back to the temple and just began to interrogate him and beat him and humiliate him every way they could, just degrading him, including bringing fake witnesses that were paid to make up ideas and say them. And so now as morning comes, we see the conclusion of Jesus doing what he came to do, dying on the cross and what leads up to it. Chapter 27 um, is interesting because it begins with a with the rest of the story when it comes to Judas. Um, Judas, for the most part, we can think of him very simply as a guy who betrayed Jesus. So he's a villain, he's a bad guy, he's horrible, um, and we don't really think too much beyond that. But then he goes into, Matthew explains about when Jesus went before Pilate, he was the governor of the region and the one who really had the legal authority over him. And so uh, it, it talks about Pilate. And then it talks about the mob that's controlled by the Jewish religious leaders and how they treated Jesus and ultimately um, killed him. And so let's jump into chapter 27. After in the first couple of verses, it talks about the chief priests and elders and Pontius Pilate. We'll get to them later. Look at verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. They had given him a couple hundred bucks to sell Jesus out. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? That's your problem. And he threw the silver in the floor of the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver and said, it's not lawful to put this into the treasury because it's the price of blood. 
It's the price they paid for blood. It's so hypocritical. And so they got together and they decided to buy a field, the potter's field, where strangers could be buried in it. And it continued until the day that Matthew was written. They probably bought the field where Jesus had hanged himself and, you know, and then said other people could get buried there too. And then it says that it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet in verse 9, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced. Now, it's actually not Jeremiah who said that. It's Zechariah. And people get all worked up like, oh, it's a contradiction in the Bible. It wasn't Jer-. But obviously Matthew is Jewish. He would have known that. He could have recognized it. He didn't like just totally make this up or mess up. Probably what happened when they would put the books of the Bible, it was all together in a scroll, but they would have several scrolls. So most likely the scroll that contained the small book of Zechariah wouldn't be its own scroll. So it was probably in the scroll of Jeremiah, which would then include Jeremiah and some of the prophetic books after that. But at any rate, that's the end of the story for Judas. Now, His story, for me, is interesting because it lets you know people are a lot more complex than you think. I feel comfortable seeing Judas as a traitor, seeing Judas as just a bad guy, seeing him as evil. But when you consider this, like why would a guy who is so evil feel so bad about what he had done that he would even take his own life, that he would give the money back? If we usually think in terms of, oh, you know, he betrayed Jesus for money. There had to be more to it than that because he came and threw the money back. Now, it really is an interesting. Remember, though, you know, Judas had been with Jesus for three years. It means he heard his teachings, saw his miracles. In fact, as as, um, one of my friends was pointing out to me this morning, he probably went out as doing miracles and preaching the gospel when all the when all the. you know, disciples got sent out. So why would a guy go through all of that and bring himself to the point where he would go kiss Jesus to betray him and Jesus is calling him friend and at that point he's not moved. But then he starts thinking about it later and all of a sudden, oh, he's freaking out. Um, What it tells me is something that is true of almost everyone. People are a lot more complicated than we sometimes realize. Now, I've wondered often, what if, you know, Judas, I mean, was he saved in the end? Did he, he he obviously seemed, he felt bad for what he had done. He seemed to be repentant. To repent means to change your mind. Now, I've seen and heard preachers who said, if he had really repented, he would have been forgiven, but he didn't repent. He was only remorseful. But, the, the same word is translated repent a bunch of other times in the New Testament. So he changed his mind. So we're uncomfortable with the notion that maybe he would actually get saved. We're like, well, I don't want him in heaven. I mean, look what he did. Uh, Jesus said, you know, I've chosen the 12 of you, but one, of you, one is a devil. Uh, I haven't lost any of you except the son of perdition that scripture might be fulfilled. It makes me wonder. I don't know. I don't know his heart. 
But what I know from the story is what I've learned from life as well. If I have a one-dimensional impression of someone, I'm probably not looking deeply enough. Now, there are people who have speculated that the reason Judas you know, betrayed Jesus is he felt like, oh, if I betray him and then the soldiers come, then he's going to set up his kingdom. That he was somehow hoping to prompt Jesus to do something. I have no idea. I don't know. I know uh, in Bob Dylan's song, With God on Our Side, he asks the question, what if in the end maybe even Judas thought he had God on his side? I don't know. But what I know from the story, now, there are people who I've heard pastors say, he could not be in heaven because his last act was to commit suicide. And if you commit suicide, that's a sin that you can't repent from. You can't be forgiven because it's the last sin that you do. And I think that's foolish. It's totally against scripture. Um, Also, I would wonder, like I had a friend who died racing his car with somebody else. So he's breaking the law. He crashes and dies. You think, therefore, he can't get saved? How about somebody who's a glutton, and they're like eating like a pig and choke on a chicken bone, and they die? Would you say the same thing for them? It's like, it's ridiculous. But there's a lot that we don't know. But the fact that Matthew goes to all of this detail, I think it prepares us for what comes after, because the truth is, if you have one-dimensional perceptions of people, you're probably oversimplifying. People are com- complicated. It's ama- if you go to, you know, when I've been into the prisons to do prison ministry, you meet prisoners, and some of them have done horrible crimes, but you talk to them, and they're, you're like, I have friends that are worse than this guy. You know, <laughs> I mean, they're just, life is complicated, and people are complicated, and so... We should, Judas's story should cause us to just go, okay, people have multi-dimensions and I'm not going to jump to conclusions in order to feel better about I understand this and it's simple. There's nothing simple about it and Judas is a great example of that. So then Jesus, Jesus goes to Pilate, beginning with verse 11. And Pilate begins to interview him. Pilate was the Roman governor. He's just trying to make the problem go away. Now, a lot of times we look at Pilate as being a guy who just had no feelings. Um, I mean, he's a politician. Basically, if you're a politician, you do what you have to do to stay in power. So that seemed simple. But he really does seem like, I don't think this guy's guilty of anything. And so he's trying to help Jesus. Like, look, just explain this to me. He goes, first of all, are you the king? And, you know, Jesus said, it is whatever you say, basically. Now, over in John's gospel, uh, Jesus explained to Pilate and said, look, my king, my kingdom is not of this world. I wish a lot more Christians would understand this. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my disciples would fight. But they're not fighting because my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Again, something that more people could be aware of today as they seem to be fighting for God. Jesus is like, no, we don't do that. That's not how we get it done. 
But Pilate's trying to help him. And he goes, man, do you hear all the stuff that people are saying about you? And verse 14, he answered him not one word. The governor was like, sheesh, what's going on? Now, it goes on to explain that at the Passover feast, they traditionally, the governor would release one prisoner and let them go free. And so he thought, this guy's kooky, but here's how I can get off the hook. I will offer to release somebody, and I'm going to put this guy Barabbas up as the other choice. Barabbas was a, you know, just says he's a criminal, but by looking at the other Gospels, he was an insurrectionist, you know, charged the capital. No, just kidding. Um, he was also a murderer. He was also a thief. So Barabbas is a dirtbag of all dirtbags. And so Pilate's like, here's the loophole. Here's the way out. He goes, so you guys, happy Passover. Now, I'm going to turn one person free. Who do you want me to turn free? Barabbas or Jesus? And the Jewish religious leaders had whipped the people up enough that they're like, give us Barabbas. Turn him free. Barabbas was probably like, what? (laughs) Yeah, what's the deal? But Pilate was kind of stuck. In the meantime, if you read in here, it talks about his wife came to him while he's in the middle of doing all this. He goes, honey, don't have anything to do with condemning this guy, Jesus. I had a dream that was really scary. Bad things would happen. So whatever you do, man, don't mess with that guy. So he tried everything that he could do without causing a riot. And, you know, the people were yelling for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate argued in verse 23, what evil has he done? They just started screaming, crucify him. And when Pilate saw, verse 24, that he could not prevail at all, he's like, I can't win with these people. But that a tumult was rising, there'll be a riot. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. He's like washing his hands, saying, I want nothing to do with this. Now you find out, is he a politician or is he a leader? Because he had the power to release Jesus. But instead, he makes this statement, thinking, I'm sure this will work. After he had tried the other stunt with Barabbas, and that backfired, he's washing his hands, saying, this isn't my problem anymore. And the people said in verse 25, his blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas and scourged Jesus and then delivered him to be crucified. Gave him basically to them so that they could do it. So Pilate, he's, he's like, he wants to go on record. Now he had every power to be able to turn Jesus loose. But he knew that if he turned him loose, these people would kill him anyhow. And he knew he couldn't persuade them. And this was kind of a small thing to him compared to, you know, some riot in Jerusalem. And so he thinks he can just get out, you know, off the hook by saying, this has nothing to do with me. His blood is on your hands. And he probably thought that that would make them go, whoa, wait a minute. But instead, they're like, no problem. Did this put his blood on somebody else's hands? No. Pilate's authority is what was used ultimately 
to crucify Jesus. So he can say all he wants. I have no, I'm washing my hands of this. But in the end, and I mean, to this day, when people quote the Apostles' Creed, part of it is that he was tried and crucified under Pontius Pilate. So it was still his responsibility. But again, you, you see the struggles. Pilate isn't just a guy that doesn't care. It's just that he's juggling his political responsibilities with the passions of the mob and with the passions of people from a religion that he doesn't completely understand. So then, after that, these religious zealots, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, they took over. And it's awful as you read what they did to him, soldiers helping them, stripped him, put a robe on him, twisted a crown of thorns on his head, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, spit on him, beat him with a reed, made fun of him, pulled the robe off, led him away to be crucified. In verse 32, as, he came, as they came out, he, apparently the cross was, he was carrying it, but it was too heavy, and they found a, a big uh, Cyrenian, Cyrene is in Africa, and Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear the cross. Here, you carry this. And they came to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, the, the hill where I suspect probably Jesus was in fact crucified, was called the place of a skull. They don't explain why necessarily, but if you go to Jerusalem, you can see right outside the walls of the city, there's this big hill. It's the highest spot where everyone coming in or going out of the city could see it. And, and the face of the cliff, there's a bus station there now, but the face of the cliff looks kind of like a skull. It's really a trip. Also up there on that hill is a tomb in a garden that we know that that was true where Jesus was taken as well. So um, it could be that place even. But man, they're just, we're going to do this. And so they went to crucify him. They gave him uh, wine mixed with gall to drink to kind of deaden the pain and he refused it. They crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that as it had been prophesied in the scriptures. And then they sat down and they were watching him. And they put a sign over his head, the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They weren't saying that to honor him. They were saying that to make it a big joke. As he's laying there, there were robbers on either side of him. And they were making fun of him. Um, they were blaspheming him, wagging their heads. They were telling him, oh, you know, you said you'd destroy the temple. Why don't you save yourself? The, even the chief priests were mocking with the scribes and elders. He saved others. How come he can't save himself if he's the king of the Jews? He trusted in God. Let God deliver him. Even the robbers reviled him with the same. They're like hanging on a cross themselves, and they're making fun of him. Like, you know, he's an embarrassment. Then from the sixth hour, which is noon, until the ninth hour, three o'clock, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which in Aramaic was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And they probably didn't know Aramaic, and they heard Eli, Eli, and they go, oh, he's crying for Elijah. Hey, why didn't Elijah come and save him? And, and Jesus finally cried out with a loud voice in verse 50. This is probably where he, he said, te telesta, it is finished. And he yielded up his spirit. And when that happened, the veil of the temple, that, that thick wall that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies, was ripped from top to bottom all the way down. The earth quaked. Rocks were split. And then this is crazy. In verse 52, graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's weird. What's really weird, this is like, if people just came out of the grave and are walking around, What's strange is only Matthew tells about that. Mark, Luke, and John all talk about the crucifixion. And they never even mention it. To me, it's the most crazy thing there is. I, I wonder, Matthew being written to Jews, if maybe there was something, you know, that the Jews would have understood this in a way that maybe others wouldn't have. I don't know. I believe it. I don't have a problem believing it. But it was one weird day. And then the centurion the guy who, you know, was in charge of the soldiers, he was guarding Jesus when he saw the earthquake and all the other stuff, feared greatly and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were a lot of women. It named some of them who were still watching from a distance. And then in verse 57, there was a rich guy from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate, and we know from John that Nicodemus, who was one of the Jewish religious leaders, went with him. By this time, Nicodemus had believed in Jesus, remember in John 3 when he talked to him. And they went and asked for custody of the body, and Pilate said, okay, fine, give it to him. And he took the body and laid it in a new tomb, which had been hewed out of a rock, and rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb just watching. So then the rest of the chapter, the the Jewish religious leaders get, they start going, what if the disciples, you know, Jesus said that he's going to rise from the dead. So what if they go sneak his body away and claim he rose from the dead? Now that's really stupid because just his body disappearing does not prove that he rose from the dead. But they went to the Romans and they said, like this guy said, crazy stuff. So is there a way that you could guard the tomb just for three days so that we know they don't pull off some fake resurrection? And he's like, fine. They put soldiers there and guarded the tomb. Now, when you read this, you want to figure out what in the world would lead people to treat someone this way. It's really hard to understand mob action sometimes. And it would be one thing if these were just evil people. But they weren't. Even the Jewish religious leaders were people who really cared about God. They had devoted their lives to him. By the way, before you, you, know, before you judge these guys too much, remember the apostle Paul, who was named Saul at the time of Tarsus, was probably one of them. He was involved in this. It's probably what he was referring to when he said that he had been the chief of sinners. 
that he was involved actually framing Jesus and setting him up for crucifixion and humiliation. But again, as with Judas, let's not be too quick to just think we understand what these people were thinking. People are complicated. We saw that with Pilate. He's complicated. We see that with these guys too. It gets confusing and it's not that easy to understand them. I don't understand Judas. I'm torn on Pilate. But now when it comes to these guys, I think, why? How does this make any sense at all other than it fulfills scripture? What were they so mad about? And why were they being so intentionally insulting and joking and humiliating in this way? Well, I mean, we see lots of examples in life sometimes of this. uh, And it partly comes back to one of the most basic truths of life. When you see someone who disagrees with you, how do you interact with them? And it's very typical that if you disagree with me, my first thought is, you must just be ignorant. You must not know what I know. So I share with you why I see it the way I do. And then you still don't agree with me. Then I decide you must be stupid. And we go a little further, and then we're like, I don't think you're stupid. You must be evil. And that's the final jump that, you know, I've decided that you are evil. And we see this in every controversy that there is. When, when uh, you know, COVID comes along, there are differences of opinion. Both sides start thinking the other side is stupid, and they end up thinking they're evil because they see it differently. And that's kind of human nature. Now, the other thing about human nature is in an argument, the one who starts raising their voice and getting mad and getting emotional isn't necessarily the one who's wrong, but it's the one who's insecure. I might be right, but if I don't have my stuff together and I'm arguing and it's not working, I start getting frustrated and I start raising the level of, of the uh, discourse. The person who is yelling in an argument feels like they're losing. And so kicking up the passion does, and that's what these guys, they could not argue with everything that Jesus was saying and doing. So they became more and more passionate about it. It's what happens. It happens today with people. You look at you know, what happens in riots where it's like, what are you guys thinking? Nobody would have, nobody planned to do this. A lot of times we want to believe, oh, no, somebody planned, you know, George Soros was behind it all or whatever. But no, it's like, this is what people do when they get frustrated and they feel like I'm not getting my message across. They just start acting like idiots. They just raise the level. And then the other thing that almost always goes along with that is humor. See, if I can't win an argument against you, I'll make fun of you. I won't give you just calm, profound ideas. I start making jokes about you. And this is like ultimately in our society today, what you see is the entire discourse on almost every subject is loud and insulting. That's how people act 
when they don't feel like they're winning, when they feel like, "Uh uh-oh, this is getting out of control, you get mad and you get funny. And you think that somehow that works. So what these people were doing was exactly what people who are losing an argument will tend to try to do. Um, And they thought, I'm doing this for God. They really believed that somehow they're doing God a favor by winning for him. And Jesus made it clear right from the beginning. I don't need you to win for me. Now, in that day, how would you feel after this was all over? Now, spoiler alert, we get to chapter 28 in a couple weeks. Jesus rose from the dead. But before that, how does everyone feel? I don't think anyone's feeling great satisfaction. And if you were a follower of Jesus, you would probably feel like it's all over. We've lost completely. This is a devastating defeat. And there are times in life when you just look at the world and you go, this, we're losing. There's no hope. But I want to suggest to you, first of all, when it comes to Judas, when it comes to Pilate, when it comes to this mob, they're more complicated than you think. But how do you find something good in this? Because if you can find the good in this story, you can also find the good in life today as we are in such a comparable environment. So I look at the story and I think, okay, did anything good happen? Well, I mean, you can see, oh, they had to get um, Simon the Cyrene to carry the cross. So you're like, so? Simon the Cyrene later, his two sons were named as being leaders in the early church. So that means a guy who's forced to carry a cross had his heart touched so much that his kids would grow up to not only love Jesus, to risk their lives to serve him. The church was being planted at this moment by something that would seem so horrible and cruel at the time. Now you think about the thieves that were making fun of him on the cross. Um, Matthew doesn't, doesn't point it out, but the other Gospels do. One of those guys changed his mind and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Do you know how comforting it is to know that all you have to do is want to be with Jesus and he receives you? It's that simple. And that it happened to somebody who was making fun of him moments earlier. What an amazing bright spot that was on a dark, dark day. Speaking of darkness, pretty incredible that in the middle of the day, it goes dark for three hours. And maybe even more incredible is at three o'clock after Jesus died, it went light again. Doesn't that get your attention? Don't you go, whoa, there's more to this for sure. And then... Where'd the earthquake come from? Oh, you know, earthquakes can just happen right at that time. How about the veil being ripped in half? It's a thick, probably six inches thick, and it's ripped from top to the bottom. How did that happen? An earthquake doesn't cause that to happen. People are listening, looking at this and going, I'll never forget that when that happened. 
And then you have these zombies coming out of the graves. It's like, whoa, you don't have to understand it, but you're like, that's weird. Dead people are walking around. Get your attention. You have the main centurion who's leading the way to defend the law, and he is there going, you know what? I think this guy is the son of God. And his other guys are like, yeah, you're right. Then if you look carefully in the background, you see a group of women, and you also see the mother of Jesus by looking at the Gospel of John and John himself, who are there. See, with everything bad that had happened, there were still some people who believed. Some of those women would end up being the initial witnesses of the fact that he had risen from the dead. So yeah, the crowd was against him. The crowd's laughing at him. The crowd's humiliating him. But all it takes is just a handful of simple witnesses who could believe and who would be faithful and who would hang in there even in the darkest of dark times where most of the disciples had just bailed completely, didn't see what was happening. Then you have a rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, and you have a Jewish religious leader, Nicodemus, who then take responsibility for the body. That's pretty courageous. They normally would leave bodies on the cross to set an example for other criminals. But they took him down, took care of his body, and they had a place to lay it because it had been prophesied that he would be buried. That was a part of the gospel. The stone was rolled into place. But to me... The biggest miracle, bigger than the earthquake, bigger than the zombies, bigger than any of this, is that the guys who hated him guaranteed that the tomb would be guarded for three days. See, if they hadn't, and, you know, who would know? What happened? Oh, somebody came and took him. Now this guy's impersonating him, or the people who believe the swoon theory that Jesus just, when he got in the coolness of the cave, he's like, Oh, I feel much better right now. And, you know, as ridiculous as that is, Roman guards were guarding his tomb. And it becomes the most powerful proof that he rose from the dead. Because you cannot explain the fact that the stone was rolled away. And that Jesus is walking around and he's talking to people. And they made sure that that would never happen And God used them and their paranoia to present the greatest evidence, real evidence of the resurrection that happened. So you read the story and it's depressing and dark, but you see little rays of light beaming through all the time. And I want to suggest to you, that's our lives today. The truth is, you look around at society, you look at people that you trust, you look at all kinds of other things that are happening in the world, and you're just like, this world is a complete mess. You know you can't fix it, so you're really wasting your time if you think that, oh, we're going to turn things around. But in a really dark day, what shines through are those little beams of light. And in this case... Whether it's, whether it's a guy carrying a cross who, who would raise his children in the Lord and they would become leaders in the church, whether it's 
an earthquake or a ripped veil or a centurion changes his mind or rich guy that buries him in a safe place or somebody who's so paranoid that he wants a guard standing. All of these situations become opportunities for the light to shine the brightest in the darkness. And that's the way our lives are as well. We just can't expect in this world for things to go our way. We are not called to be the winners. We're going to win this thing for Jesus. No, we're not. He said, no, you aren't. That's not how I do things. He told the disciples right when he called them, I better explain this to you. And probably no one explained this to you when they led you to Christ. If you want to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's what life feels like for a follower of Jesus. Is it hopeless? No. It's dark. But all around are little beams of light. That person who shows you beauty in an ugly world. That event that happens that seems so awful. I mean, it's September 11th, and I remember when those horrible events happened, and how many people all of a sudden came to church, and I had friends who were there sharing the Lord with people, and everybody was willing to listen. Oh, did it last? For some people it did. I know people who got saved that day. But at the same time, just a little beam of light. That's all you're looking for. That's all Jesus needs. And I think whenever it's the darkest is when the little pen light shining means the most. We need to expect that we are called to die, but in the process of that death, we need to look for tiny opportunities to make a difference. That's how Jesus always communicates. He doesn't communicate by winning arguments. He doesn't communicate by pushing his weight around. He doesn't communicate by, you know, changing everything, taking over, establishing a kingdom. Oh, when he establishes his kingdom, nobody's going to miss it. In the meantime, he's like, you take up your cross because there are little opportunities all around you. And I I can pretty much promise you this week, things aren't going to go the way you want them to. Things aren't going to go even the way you expect. But what I would encourage you to do is, if this week seems particularly dark, Look for the rays of light. Look for the tiny things that make a difference. Look for the simple opportunities to shine by contrast. Because that's how Jesus does things. He showed us that here, and he shows us that every day we can accept the fact that, yeah, life is is rough. But man, when the light shines, let your light so shine. A light only shines in the darkness. Light doesn't shine in the light. So that's what we're called to do. And his death reminds us of that. The next chapter, chapter 28, will remind us that death is temporary. And that's good to know, too. But that didn't make it hurt any less. He was still, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can't soften that. He didn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'll see you in a few days. No. It's like he was in the middle of the darkest time of his life. But the light shined in an amazing way. And that's, that's kind of what I'm taking from this chapter. 
I'm not going to try to understand everyone. They're all complex. So am I. But in the end, if I'm in a dark world, I'm looking for the light. I'll celebrate the light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this painful chapter. It's so hard to see somebody that we love not only tortured, but humiliated and insulted and and crucified. But we see that he wasn't complaining. He wasn't defending himself. He didn't get a lawyer. He was simply going along with what you were allowing to happen because he understood this is the road to salvation. Lord, help us to learn that lesson. Help us to not... Well, I remember that song lyric, um, kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. It doesn't work that way. Help us to look for the tiny beams of light. Not because they will overcome the darkness, but because they will shine in a way that connects us more with the big picture, with the God who loves us, with the Jesus who died for us. And help us this week not to get mad at people who don't see things our way. Help us not to rant. Help us not to insult. Help us to do everything we can do to be light in a dark place. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.